Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. The families of Israeli hostages taken by Hamas call for urgent action. But with the world's gaze fixed on Gaza, Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas warns that we shouldn't turn a blind eye to the threat from Russia. And conflict and politics collide in America. The New Yorker's Susan Glasser explains how the Israel-Hamas war is fueling tensions going into the 2024 elections. Plus, navigating college while under the poverty line. Michelle Martin speaks to best-selling author Stephanie Land. And finally, remembering the man behind some of the world's most beloved books. For Shion's conversation with veteran publisher Stephen Rubin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goladriga in D.C., sitting in for Christian Amanpour. The families of the estimated 237 hostages believed to be held captive by Hamas are demanding answers about where their loved ones are and when they will see them again. Today, they continue their march towards Jerusalem after setting off from Tel Aviv four days ago. And in New York, the face of one hostage, nine-year-old Emily Hand, lit up Times Square on her ninth birthday. Her father told CNN that he just wants his daughter back. She can't have a birthday. We were hoping that she would be back by now. That, was, that, that would have been our prayers answered. But she's not. She's still down in the, in the tunnels. And now we have to hope that she'll be back for Christmas. Unimaginable pain these families are going through. Well, these calls come as Israeli forces say they have recovered the bodies of two hostages near Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. They've been named as 65-year-old Yehudit Wise and 19-year-old Noah Marciano. Israel is doubling down on its claim that the medical center sat above a Hamas command center. The IDF released this image, which it says shows a tunnel shaft that's part of that network. CNN has not been able to verify that on our own, although we've geolocated this to the hospital complex. Hamas denies operating out of al-Shifa. Well, whilst the eyes of the world are trained on Gaza, there's fear among Ukraine and its allies that its fight against Russia is slipping down the global agenda. Watching all of this closely is Estonia on the front lines of Russian aggression. Prime Minister Kaya Kallas, dubbed the Iron Lady of Europe, met U.S. House Speaker Johnson in Washington this week. Upon her return, she spoke to Christian from the Estonian capital of Tallinn. Prime Minister Kallas, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Can I ask you whether in, in Estonia, in the Baltic states, you are feeling a little left out? Do you worry that the shift of focus to the Middle East, where there's a raging war, has taken the eye dangerously off the ball of Putin? 
Well, clearly, uh, the new crisis has taken a lot of attention from all of us. But I think that we can deal with similar, I mean, simultaneous crises at the same time. Uh, we have been doing this before and we can't have, uh, you know, focus shifted from Ukraine because it's a war going on also in Europe and has a much uh, broader consequences for everybody if Putin succeeds. What do you think Americans need to know about doing what you've just said, that Putin should not succeed? And of course, that's what Biden has said. But in the meantime, you have the new Republican Speaker of the House cutting out aid for Ukraine. You have President Trump reminding audiences that when he was president, he told a head of government, I will not protect you if Russia attacks. You know, the fundamental uh, thing is that everybody uh, thinks America is the greatest country in the world. Uh, if, uh, you know, America is not uh, supporting Ukraine here, uh, Russia will win and then uh, America will be second, not the first uh, power. I, I think this is uh, also important. What is at stake here is uh, really fight for freedom. Uh, freedom is the basis of uh, American constitution. It is all what America is about. So, so here we have one country fighting for its freedom, for its right to exist, and on the other side, we have a country that wants to erase this. It's very, very clear. It's very black and white. And America has always been on the right side of, of uh, freedom. So I hope that this is the case right now as well. Can I play a quick soundbite from President Zelensky, who also addressed the issue of, you know, war fatigue or war distraction? If Russia will kill all of us, they will attack NATO countries and you will send your, your sons and daughters. And it will be, I'm sorry, but the price will be higher. Uh, Prime Minister, he's basically saying that it could drag the US in finally. This is correct. I mean, uh, uh, when we don't do the right thing now, then the price will be higher. Uh, the price will go up with every hesitation, with every delay. And uh, I mean, we all want this war to end. Uh, we are uh, in a place where, you know, uh, Russia could easily end this war when they realize they made a mistake. They can't win in Ukraine because they can't break the will of Ukrainians and because we are supporting uh, Ukraine uh, uh, with the military aid, with everything um, uh, that is needed. So uh, this tipping point is is not far if we stick together. If we give in now, then I'm absolutely uh, sure that the price for all of us, also those who are much further away from, from Russia or Ukraine, uh, the price for all of us will be bigger. You know, your states are frontline states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And you have experienced Soviet invasion and occupation in the not too distant past. What are you doing differently? And do you fear now that Putin might be emboldened, despite what you're saying now, by America being focused on the Middle East and might even try some mischief at some point in your states? 
Um, not so far, um, uh, Putin hasn't tried uh, NATO, but saying that if you think uh, past every step that he has taken, the next one has been bolder because the response from the West has been weak. I bring you this example. In 2008, uh, Georgia was attacked. In 2014, Crimea was an annexed. And there, you know, Russia was ashamed that it's uh, Russian soldiers because they were afraid of the Western response. But as the response was weak, then the next time it's already bolder. It's like, yes, we're going to attack a neighboring sovereign country and we don't even uh, hide it. Uh, so, so I uh, would guess on the basis of this pattern, then the next step will be even more bolder than that. And yes, it might be also, uh, you know, testing NATO in some way. In NATO, we have the Article 5 that says that attack on one is attack on all. And, and that means we all have a skin in the game. And you have said that you would like to be considered as the next NATO Secretary General. Uh, we know that Stoltenberg is finally going to be retiring. Can you give me some more detail on that? Do you want the job? Why do you want the job? No, uh, I mean, I get this question a lot. And this time uh, the uh, journalist asked, would you like to be considered? Uh, then who, who wouldn't? And at the same time, I mean, I have this uh, uh, frustration uh, in terms of uh, being in these big organizations already uh, 20 years. And I see, you know, we have a lot of good people in Estonia, smart people, uh, very hardworking people. But when it comes to, uh, you know, posts, different posts, then we are not even considered. And, and it's still the Western uh, Western countries and people coming from there. So so uh, would I be offered such a job? It's highly unlikely. Uh, but uh, would I like to be considered? Then, then yes. And I just want to press one more question on this. And do you think it's because, you know, one of your qualifications, apart from all the others you've just said, is that you've actually experienced Russia on your border and, you know, you know, because it's happened in the not too distant past. Uh, well, we know definitely Russia um, because we have been occupied by Russia, not so, not in so distant past. Uh, therefore, we have been right regarding Russia uh, before. And I think we are right uh, regarding Russia now. Do you think there's still stuff about Putin that we don't get? Do you think that the Americans, the Europeans, the global South still doesn't fully understand what you understand about Putin? What we have to keep in mind is that um, it is not the democracy. So as we are uh, used to thinking and seeing things through this democratic lens, then in, in Russia, uh, you know, Kremlin doesn't think that way. They uh, are, uh, you know, he's a dictator and he's thinking like dictator is thinking. So, uh, so we have to, uh, you know, have awareness of this uh, totally different uh, attitudes uh, towards governing. So we have to keep in mind what is uh, of uh, interest to a dictator, uh, keeping the cronies around him happy, that means the oligarchs, and keeping the power structures, the army, happy, uh, because they keep in, uh, him in, in power and make the deeds that he wants them to make. So uh, I think in terms of those two elements, 
there are uh, oligarchs who are not happy because we are uh, sanctioning their property and, and already talking about uh, using that property for the benefit of uh, reparations in Ukraine. And uh, regarding the army, as I was saying, uh, the Grigorian mutiny shows that the army is not happy. Why I'm saying this is that I still feel that the tipping point might not be that far. Well, that's provocative uh, thought, food for thought. How long do you think this war will last? Well, it's it's hard to tell. At the same time, I don't want to I don't want to give expectations that it's going to end uh, very very soon. But if you think about you know uh, Russia's um, military operation in Afghanistan, then uh, they were there for ten years. If you think about Ukraine, they uh, you know started uh, already two thousand and fourteen. So next year it will be ten years. Maybe uh, then is the time when they realize they made a mistake and they can't win there. Really fascinating, Prime Minister Kaya Kallas. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All the best. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, from Europe to the United States, where this week protests turned violent outside the DNC in Washington with people calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Amid the Israel-Hamas war and a rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. All of this is playing out as the prospect of a dark, divisive 2024 presidential campaign becomes even clearer. Just over a week ago, chilling Veterans Day promised from Trump to root out communists, Marxists, fascists and radical left thugs that live like vermin. It's a quote. We've also had this week allegations of a physical altercation inside of Congress. A week ago, a week away from the big U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving, what to make of this moment as war, politics and dangerous rhetoric collide? Here to discuss is Susan Glasser, staff writer with The New Yorker. Uh, Susan, it is great to see you. Um, so let's start at the bottom. And that is the very childish behavior that we have seen from several members of Congress. Uh, Congressman Tim Burchett, a Republican from Tennessee, uh, accusing former Speaker McCarthy of intentionally elbowing him, elbowing him in the kidneys. McCarthy replied, if I really wanted to hurt you, you would feel it. Um, we also had a potential fight um, that was diffused by Senator Sanders uh, between a Republican uh, senator and the head of the Teamsters Union. I, I mean, a lot of this transpiring as I described with the the backdrop in the intro to you you've been covering Washington and politics for a long time with so much on the line now in the US and around the world what do you make uh, of this rather childish immature and very inappropriate behavior we've seen 
<laughs> well, first of all, I'm just exhausted by your uh, very accurate, I'm afraid, <laughs> of things. Uh, this is this is an exhausting, grueling, stressful time to be engaged with politics in the United States. It's only temperatures are only going to rise as we get closer and closer to our national elections next year. Uh, and, you know, there's tensions inside the Republican Party. There's tensions inside the Democratic Party. There's tensions, of course, across the aisle. It's really it's a very fraught moment. And, uh, you know, you see those frayed nerves Hill, where, of course, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker who allegedly was, you know, elbowing, that wasn't just a random member of Congress. It was one of the eight Republicans who ended his speakership. Uh, and uh, if you wonder, does he have hard feelings? The answer is clearly yes, uh, at, at least if you believe the account of this incident. But, you know, right now you have a situation where dysfunction is almost the synonym for what is happening uh, in our in our government. The only good news that you left out is that they decided to kick our next spending crisis this week down the road into January, which I suppose is good news. Uh, but it does mean that at least they can go off and have their holiday break. And they even gave themselves extra time for the holiday. Yeah, Speaker Johnson accomplished what his predecessor, um, Speaker McCarthy, could not in a relatively similar bill, and that is keeping spending levels at their current level uh, for the next few months. Um, but what was missing, notably missing, uh, from this uh, stopgap spending bill, which the president incidentally signed this week, was something that was really important, a top priority for this administration and for Democrats and for many Republicans, and that is funding for aid to Israel, Ukraine and then Taiwan and even border funding. Um, this is something the president had been hoping to accomplish before the end of the year. What do you make of the predicament this administration finds itself in in getting that aid in time? Because as we know, that money is really depleting, especially on the Ukrainian front. Absolutely. This is really important. President Biden's major foreign policy priorities at this point are all wrapped up and their fate is linked to to congress which as we've just seen is a, is a just a hotbed of dysfunction right now biden has asked congress to send him a 105 billion dollar supplemental bill that would pay for some of these foreign policy priorities as well as the border the vast majority of that money in that bill 60 billion out of the 105 billion would be for ukraine there's a real urgency to that in fact there was a pentagon spokesperson quoted this week as saying they were down to down to their last billion of previously authorized funds joe biden has said to the ukrainian people the United States will be there as long as it takes. He's repeated that quote over and over again, as long as it takes. And yet, honestly, we can't guarantee that we'll be there past next week in a meaningful sense. And so the U.S. has made this extraordinary commitment. This is, in, by some measures, the largest such military assistance the U.S. has given since the end of World War II and the Marshall Plan. This is an incredible uh, uh, foreign policy priority to help Ukraine resist Russian aggression, and yet its fate is completely up in the air. There's still a bipartisan majority, I should say, it appears in both the House and the Senate to uh, get this money. The problem is the leadership in the House and the growing momentum behind the kind of what you might call the pro-Trump, anti-Ukraine forces in the House, getting that to a vote on the floor, nobody sees the pathway to that at the moment. 
Well, as we heard from uh, Christian's interview with the Prime Minister of Estonia, uh, Kaya Kailas, that, that this is a real concern for uh, allies in Europe when they see uh, the president coming up this type of resistance from many in Congress to providing additional funding for Ukraine. And uh, former President Trump, who is the leading frontrunner for the Republican nomination now, has been very vocal about his stance on the war and continued funding. And you speak to any expert, yourself included, uh, this is what the Russians and Vladimir Putin are banking on. And they are hoping to see another Trump uh, presidency because they think that would really impact the direction this war takes. That's just one of the issues that uh, the president, the former president, has said that he will he will implement if he is reelected. Let's talk about some of the other plans that, that he has been transparent about if he wins. And they include rounding up migrants, placing them in massive detention, purging tens of thousands of government workers and replacing them with his loyalists. And then, of course, using the Justice Department to harass political uh, opponents. And um, we'll get to his language that he's used in just a minute. But just on the policies themselves, what do you make of the fact that uh, he's being, again, transparent about what he plans to do, yet we're not seeing much pushback from Republicans, even those running for the nomination against him, and we're not seeing much impact in the polls right now? Well, look, uh, you know, Republican Party has, has, has largely made a choice, uh, which is to continue to be the Trump Republican Party, uh, even after his unprecedented uh, effort to remain in power after losing the 2020 election. And so, you know, really you've seen a, a kind of years of, of purging of anti-Trump Republicans or marginalizing them, moving to the sidelines, uh, members uh, rather than to continue on. And so it's actually a Trumpier Republican Party in many ways than it was even just a few years ago. So that's part of it. Uh, you know, Trump would represent a radical shift, a radical shift in American foreign policy. There's no secret, as you said, to his agenda. In many ways, uh, if you want to know what his agenda in his second term is, look to the unfinished business of his first term, things that he wanted to do, that he consistently spoke of, but that he was constrained in some way, either by his own advisors who turned out not to be as uh, as Trumpy as he wanted them to be, or by the courts or by Congress. And so those form the basis. Donald Trump has always spoken of using the justice system to go up against uh, his political opponents. That's what he tried to do uh, with Joe Biden that led to his first impeachment. Uh, and it led to his rift uh, with his uh, second attorney general, Bill Barr, in the fall of 2020, when he demanded and aware of the indictments of, of Biden and the like. And so, of course, Trump now just has more grievance. He's got 91 felony counts. He's got four different criminal indictments. So when he speaks of his uh, campaign agenda now, he uses the word retribution and termination, as in termination of the Constitution, if that's what's necessary to put him back in power. We should take that seriously, it seems to me. Yeah. He also used the word vermin, uh, which is a, a repetition of what we've heard from Adolf Hitler directly. I mean, that, that is the exact word that Adolf Hitler used, uh, Trump using it uh, in describing his opponents. Um, and listen, it, it just speaks to the history of the type of language, shocking language that sadly has become more or less the norm when it comes to what's to be expected from the former president. Listen to, to what he just said this past summer in June as well. 
This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. You know, his former opponent, Hillary Clinton, said that, that we should take him at his word and believe what he says. How, how do you interpret, and, and from people that you talk to in your reporting, how is this language being interpreted at this point? Look, Donald Trump is using the language of dictators. Uh, he is speaking in terms to dehumanize his opponents, to degrade them to make them non-human, subhuman. This is the technique of demagogues and dictators. I remember, you know, when he was president writing a whole column about his use of the uh, phrase human scum. And, mm -hmm. you know, I looked where, where are any other examples of incumbent heads of state uh, using the term human scum? And the answer is essentially there are only examples of dictators using that kind of language. The kind of people who talk about human scum are people like Kim Jong-un. Uh, you know, Trump's signature phrase against us media folk was enemy of yeah. the people. That was the specific term used in Stalin's Russia to condemn millions to the gulag. Uh, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump, he might have been ignorant the first time he said it, but he was yeah. certainly told again and again and again what it meant. He's doing this on purpose. This is not uh, an accident. This is a, a window into uh, the the thinking of the man who who would be president of the United States again. Susan, I feel we'll be having many more of these types of conversations in the weeks and months to come. Um, in the meantime, thanks so much for for coming on and, and happy Thanksgiving to you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, in a significant shift in position, Israel now says that it will allow two fuel tankers a day into Gaza to support water and sewage processing in the enclave. Medical staff in Gaza have been warning for weeks about the serious threat posed by the lack of clean water and the spread of diseases. According to the United Nations, 1.5 million people are now displaced, most of whom have fled south. One Palestinian journalist recorded his family's harrowing journey, showing us the many dangers along the way. Correspondent Jumana Karachi has his story and a warning. Some of the scenes in her report are graphic. Gaza City. Two-year-old Walid, distracted through his family's most difficult night of the war so far. With daybreak, the Israeli military calls with an order. You have 30 minutes to get out. It was 9.30 a.m. on November the 10th. With makeshift white flags, they say the military told them to hold up. They prepare to move. With the little they can carry, they head out and into the unknown. Some too frail to walk. <laughs> Journalist Rami Abujamus is filming the forced evacuation of his family, along with more than 30 of their neighbors. His phone in his right hand, and in the other, his son Walid. <laughs> he speaks French with his son, looking for his wife ahead. <laughs> while waiting for other elderly neighbors struggling to catch up. 
احملوا احملوا اياد احملوا حطوا على ظهرك هيك وتوكل على الله تخافوش تخافوش على اليمين تعالي يا حج على حج على اليمين يا حج يلا ديروا بالكم النتفه هذه اه يلا That constant buzz you hear is Israeli drones overhead. It's been the soundtrack of Gaza for years. As they get to the other side of the street, Rami spots his neighbor, Abu Ahmed. Something's not right. Ahmed was shot in the head. He didn't make it. And around the corner, two others, a man and a woman, also shot. It's uncertain who opened fire on the group. CNN geolocated these videos and traced this deadly journey out of central Gaza City. We provided the Israeli military with details of this incident and these coordinates, but they did not respond to our request for comment. Hello? Hello, Rami. We reached Rami, now in the south. Like most here, they were on their own. They got to Shifa Hospital, but so did the war. Witness to it all, two-year-old Walid. I kept trying to make sure he's not scared and make him feel like what he's seeing around us is a circus or an amusement park. I don't know if I succeeded. Even the journey of humiliation where you take a donkey here and a horse there, I was trying to make that entertaining for him. I asked Rami why he decided to film. I just want this to get to the world so they know the injustice that we're facing. They cast doubt on everything we do. They're stronger in every way. Not just militarily, but with the information that comes out, the narrative that comes out, the news that comes out. What they say is the truth, and our words are lies. Please, just deliver our message. I don't want anything else. I don't want all those who have been killed to have died in vain. Rami doesn't know what they'll do now, but says he will only leave his homeland forced at gunpoint or dead. Israel says they have tried to call people in Gaza to evacuate areas where military operations are underway to minimize civilian casualties. But there has been worldwide criticism on the number of deaths in Gaza. The Hamas-controlled Gaza Ministry of Health says more than 11,400 people have been killed, including about 4,700 children.
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Well, the author Stephanie Land became an overnight sensation with her debut memoir, Made. A long, hard look at her impoverished beginnings and the trial she faced as a single parent. The book became a bestseller and was turned into a hugely successful Netflix series. We covered that, incidentally, here on the show. Well, now Land is back with a sequel called Class, which digs into how her struggles didn't end once she got into college, which is where Maid ended. In fact, many things even became harder. She tells Michelle Martin about it all. Thanks, Biana. Stephanie Land, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. You know, I was thinking about your last book, Made. It made huge waves. I mean, it was a New York Times bestseller. It led to this Netflix series that, you know, at the time, one of the most successful series that they'd ever had. And I just, you know, I was thinking about it and going back to the book, and it ends with, you know, what you'd think is the Hollywood ending. You get to go to college, which has had been your dream, but it kind of wasn't. So why wasn't it that Hollywood ending that we all thought it was going to be? Well, I uh, made did end on a kind of literal high note. You know, we climbed up a mountain and and had this like joyous moment. And over the years, people have said, like, I'm so glad that you had your happy ending. And I just kind of thought like, it got kind of really hard after that. Uh, And it was simply because I I had to go to class in person. Uh, And so, of course, that limited the amount of hours that I could work. Um, And government assistance programs don't count the hours that you spend in class as work for work requirements. So, um, so the, the amount of assistance that I was getting for food and housing and everything, um, was diminished because of that. You know, the, the story picks up with you moving to Missoula, Montana with your then four-year-old daughter, you call Amelia. So one of the things that's a through line between this book and your previous book It's just how precarious it all is, even when you're doing what everybody says is the right thing to do, right? So just kind of walk us through it, just from the very beginning, when you're trying to, say, enroll, for example. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, the thing that I immediately was surprised by was I thought um, the residency, you know, how Mm -hmm. you get a smaller amount of tuition if you're a resident um, of the town where the school is. Um, I thought that because I had completely moved my whole entire life there, then that made me an immediate resident. Um, But that wasn't the case. So I had to um, prove that I was a resident over a year before I would get the decreased tuition. I think what I really didn't realize would be such a huge need would be um, the childcare. Um, the, The classes you know, they, they tried to make, um, you know, kind of blend together so I could group them into 
two days a week or something. And then I could work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but a lot of my classes went into the evening and, and that required a babysitter because that was after daycare hours or, or public school hours. Uh, and, and that was most of my stress was just making sure that someone was taking care of my daughter while I was in a class that I was required to attend. And then there's also the question of the grants. Now I think people are aware because it's been very much in the news and because so many people are affected by it, just how much debt people can get into trying to finish a degree, a degree that, you know, many people need just to function in this economy. Yeah. Um, so I re- I did receive a full Pell Grant um, and I had a small um, tuition that came out to be about um, $2,000 a semester. Um, and I, I did take out the maximum amount of loans and what the loans actually went to um, was my living expenses. So it came out to be about a thousand dollars a month um, that I budgeted for um, very heavily. And um, and so when I graduated school, even though I'd only taken out loans for, I think the last two and a half years of school, um, I, I was forty-five to fifty thousand dollars in debt just just from that. What made you write this book? The part of this story that I think is the most meaningful to me in just how it has affected me as as a person, as a human being, was mm-hmm. um, I I was I was kicked off of food stamps because I could not meet the work requirements. Um, mm-hmm. I needed to work 20 hours a week while going to school full time in order to receive food stamps um, because my daughter was over six years old. Uh, and and that that really um, that's something I still struggle with today is is just feeling like I somehow don't deserve food if I can't work enough for it. You know, I remember when uh, those work requirements were being debated, as they have been, you know, off and on through the last, you know, couple of decades, that kind of concept in the modern era came in during the Clinton administration. You know, you write a lot about that. You said that all government assistance programs operated on the assumption that every person who walked into their office brought with them the possibility of scamming them in some way. We were asked detailed questions about our assets, what kind of car we drove, or if we had a burial plot, not because the government cared, but to determine if there was money hidden that we didn't disclose. It was ridiculous to imagine that anyone would try to pull a fast one by spending hours at a government assistance office in the middle of the workday so they could possibly leave with a couple hundred bucks a month for food. But this was how I spent hours and sometimes entire workdays of my life convincing authorities that I wasn't a criminal. These invasions of privacy caused me to fidget and squirm, but I submitted to them like everything else because it was another means to an end. Do you remember when it occurred to you that that's kind of what it, what it was? It's almost like they don't want you to have it or that they assume you're trying to sort of get one over on them. I think over the years, you know, I... I've been off of food stamps since early 2016, and I have been writing about it and paying attention to, you know, the conversations around it, especially in the media. And um, 
I, I just, I've noticed uh, a trend that I, I think that they make it harder so that less people sign up. Um, and, and there's two reasons for that, I think, is, you know, the states receive block grants. And if those grants aren't used, then they can use them for other things. And the less people who sign up, then the more progress is being made and, and things are better and, you know, see, we don't even need these programs. And, and, and there's always the, the, um, the welfare to work thing, you know, you, you mentioned Bill Clinton and, and welfare reform and, and that has been the assumption since the beginning of, of welfare programs, it seems is, is the people who are on government assistance programs are choosing not to work. And, and that is hardly ever the case. Most of the families who are on food stamps are, are working, um, multiple jobs sometimes. The other through line of the book and of is this whole question of what you deserve. Like, do you deserve to go to college? Like, do you deserve to do work that you want to do as opposed to work that you have to do or that you are worthy or if you're only worthy because you're working? Could you talk a little bit more about that and what that feeling is and why you think it's so pervasive? Um, it it really felt like um not only did i not deserve to be there like i never felt deserving of higher education i never felt entitled to it um it to me it felt like i i was taking up space i mean i i felt like i was um not just an imposter but like i was there on a grant, you know, like I couldn't fully participate in a lot of the college atmosphere, you know, like I couldn't hang out with friends. I couldn't go to the outside of class activities that a lot of the other students were going to. Um, and not just the pizza parties, like the, you know, the, the, um, the readings of authors that were visiting in town and, um, things that a lot of people who were in my degree program were going to, um, and, and I just, you know, I was 10 years older than most of the people in my class and, and very much felt out of place. And like, I didn't belong. Um, I really felt apologetic if I needed to take up my professor's time, um, because I just, I felt like, you know, being on government assistance and, and already receiving so much help in that way, like it, I think it just messed with me a lot. And, and I just felt like I shouldn't ask for more help because I was already getting a lot that other people weren't, um, you know, and I, I think there's, there's a thing when, when you are hungry and, and you don't have enough money to feed yourself to the point where you are satiated, um, it, it really affects you and you, you hide from people and, and, I, I did my best to hide that. It was it was it was embarrassing um, to to not have enough money. You do write about kind of the judgment that you get from a lot of different people, including family members. I'm just sort of puzzled by why it is that so few people seem to be willing to let you dream, and, and I'm just wondering why you think that might be. It was you know dreams don't pay that much. Um, and, and it takes a lot to succeed, um, especially in the arts. Um, and, 
So it, there was no guarantee. There was no job at the end of it there. You know, even my classes in college didn't teach me how to make money as a writer. And, and so there was really, um, this question of like, you're doing what you're getting a degree in English. What are you going to do with that? And, and so it was very much this, like, um, I needed to be on a path where employment and health benefits and all of that was at the end. Okay. I have an awkward question, but again, you're kind of, your 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 brand is honesty, right? The decision to have a second child when you were already struggling to be the parent you wanted to be to your first, you talk about that in the book. Will you talk about that? Because that is something that I think where people feel entitled to judge, right? I mean, they feel entitled to judge. And so I wanted to ask if you would just talk about that, how, how you came to the decision that you were going to go and have a second child, even though it was already hard to have one. Well, I mean, it wasn't a planned thing. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I was purposefully trying, um, but I discovered I was, I was pregnant and, um, and I, have always wanted my oldest to have a sibling. You know, I grew up with a little brother and, um, she was always asking for a little sister. Like she asked for a sandwich for lunch. And, and so it was just this, uh, it was something I wanted. And, and I have experienced so much judgment from that, mm-hmm. um, just because of my economic status at the time. Um, and, you know, that's, that's very, that's a very unique sort of judgment for people who are poor. Um, mm. and I, and so like, I, for me, it's been a conversation that I've just kind of had over the years, but, um, lately it's just been this, uh, since I've been doing so many interviews, mm-hmm. um, it's just like, well, why, why can't I choose to have mm. a child? Um, in writing the book though, you know, I wrote the book right after the overturn of, of Roe v. Wade. And, and I, I really wanted to show what it's like to have a child with absolutely no resources. Um, because for a lot of women or, you know, people who have a uterus, like if they can't get an abortion, then they suddenly have a child to take care of. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to receive a lot of resources because of that. I mean, there's still, it's very hard. And, and, and so, um, part of me really wanted to show what that it looks like too. Um, but for me, you know, I, I really wanted to have a baby. I wanted to have two children and I was 35 and, you know, I was already considered like a geriatric pregnancy and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. I thought my time was running out and, and that was the choice I made. I'm so interested in also your, how you feel you kind of changed between your first book and your second or have you? Oh, well, I mean, the, the voice and, and kind of my character are, are very different between the first book and the second, you know, the first book, I wrote it in a very apologetic, you know, please, sir, can I have some more, you know, Oliver Twist type of character. And um, I felt apologetic for just being a person in that story, you know, for for being a person who's on government assistance. And um, 
in writing the second book, uh, I, I discovered that I was pretty angry about what I had to go through. And I had the, I felt I had the platform, you know, I had the clout, I had the Netflix series and all of that, that I, I felt like it might be accepted to hear an angry woman, uh, write a whole book and talk about how angry she is about, about something. And a lot of that was because it's been 10 years since I have been in that situation. And I have a new sense of normalcy. Um, I have, um, a lot more privilege than I did then. And I still had privilege then just as a white person in that situation. But, um, now it's like to go back and and truly live in that time and absorb it and write about it and write from that space. Um, I, I couldn't believe that I had to go through that. And it, it made me angry. There are a lot of people who think we're in an even meaner time now than we were then. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel now? Do you still feel angry? Do you feel hopeful in any way? There was a time at the beginning of the pandemic that I did feel hope. <laughs> um, and and it, it it was really incredible to see so many people realizing, like even Biden tweeted that people didn't have a sick day. And all over the news were restaurant workers who suddenly couldn't pay rent because they had been out of work for two weeks. And mm-hmm. and we called workers, workers essential, um, which I thought was kind of sad, to be honest, because, you know, those were people who could not afford to not go to work. And and they were also forced to go to work in the pandemic. Um, But there was just this moment of like, oh my goodness, these people, they need help. We need to help them. Um, And you had the unemployment expansion, you had the child tax credit expansion, you had um, all of these programs um, begin and then they ended. And everybody went back into poverty and, and, you know, we were able to show how much uh, poor people actually do benefit from having some money and, and then it disappeared again. And, and I, I think, you know, the crux of all of this is, you know, the, the American bootstrap myth, you know, if you work hard enough, then you're going to make it. And so if you're not making it, then you're not working hard enough. Um, but there's also just this, um, we don't trust poor people with money and, Mm. and we don't think that they deserve nice things. And, and I, when, when all of those arguments start up again, you know, when people start crying about work requirements and, um, and how we can't just give people a free lunch and, and they need to work for it first, like, that's that's the basis of that argument is is a belief that poor people just can't have nice things. Stephanie Land, thank you so much for talking with us again. Thank you. I, I can't wait until we get to talk again. We can't wait for that either. And finally, this week marks a month since the passing of Steve Rubin, the man behind some of the world's most beloved writers and biggest books, working with the likes of Dan Brown, Hilary Mantle, and John Grisham. The veteran publisher died last month at the age of 81. Remembering his life and legacy, we take a look back at Christian's conversation with him from January, where the two discussed Rubin's own memoir, Words and Music, Confessions of an Optimist. Can I just ask you before I go on to some of these great writers that you discovered, um, 
you are an optimist. It says confessions of an optimist. About publishing, do you remain an optimist? I mean, are enough people do. reading I books? I do. Yeah. I do. I, you know, they, 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 for years they've been predicting the death of the book, which is a lot of crap because the, the people love the tactile experience of reading a book. I love it. I'm sure you love it. Mm -hmm. I, I'd much rather read a book than read a book on a device. Um, so, yeah, I'm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, sales are better than ever. You know, the pandemic, people read a lot of books. They, they really did. Let's go to one of the first big, big authors, John Grisham. Um, you were brought The Firm. I guess it's his first big book, right? Tell yeah, me about that. Yeah, what happened that. was when I joined, when I joined Doubleday, the, the, he was already there. I didn't acquire it. And um, I read it and I said, oh, my God. God, <laughs> it was such a whirlwind, uh, such narrative force. Um, so we decided that what we'll do is, remember, no one, ever, no one ever heard of John Grisham at that point. We decided we'd market it to lawyers. It seems like the right place to go. And that's how we started. We had a 25,000 first printing. And um, I've never seen anything like it. It just took off because of word of mouth, which is still, by the way, Christiane, the best way to sell a book. So um, he, he just took off and took off and took off and it was the cleanest sale ever because there were no returns because all we ever did was reprint. Um, then, you know, he's a very handsome guy so we plastered his, his face all over the ads and everything and he really didn't like that. He didn't want to be a, a you know, a model kind of thing but he once, just to make me angry, he once insisted on being published with having not had a shave. Um, but it all worked. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. What a thrilling ride to be on. Oh and, my and God, it just got better and better. And you, you said, I think- and He's still doing it. Yeah, and 23 books, I think, you, you all published to, I, together. I published 23 Yeah, 23 books, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, but the other big one, which kind of again came out of nowhere, or explain to me whether it did, was Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. Well, well, what happened was that Dan had published three novels that, that, were, that were very, very modest successes. And uh, his editor left his publishing house and came to us and brought us a proposal for The Da Vinci Code, which we thought was just great. So we bought it. Um, we bought two books, actually, for, I can tell you, $400,000, just think. Um, <laughs> and, um, and he... He gave us 150 pages to start with, which had absolutely nothing to do with the bloodline of Christ. And we read it and said, oh, my God, this is amazing. So what I did was I chose 15 people to give it to. And all 15 of them, male, female, old, young, editorial, sales, everything, every single one of them fell in love with it. So we knew in my mind, that's a microcosm of the world out there. And we knew we had something special. Then we met him, and oh my God, he was so charming, so we, we sent him out to meet everybody. And eventually what happened was that Barnes & Noble really took a great stance on it, and then Borders heard about it, and they took a stance at it. So for a guy who never sold anything, we shipped 220,000 copies day one. Wow. And, and on, at, the, at the end of day one, he sold more copies than his previous three books put together. Yeah. 
Well, and the rest is history, films, you know, Tom Hanks and the yeah, lot. Everything. Yeah. And but, the nicest guy in the yeah. world. I want to ask you things. something about the, the person that, that, we, that we both knew, Jackie Onassis, and that's how I first met you. She was an editor at Doubleday. And there's a story here that I had no idea about. I want to read it. Um, she, you, you, you asked her to, you know, to, to help on a book by Maya Angelou. And here's the extract. Surprisingly, she, Jackie, could also be very insecure. We once were scheduled to have a conference call with the formidable Maya Angelou, and as we were preparing for it, Jackie suddenly demanded that I ask all the tough questions. Why, I responded. She scares me, Jackie said forthrightly. Maybe you scare her, I said. No way, Jackie said, in her signature, whispery, campy, unmistakable voice. Why was Jackie Onassis scared of, of, of Maya Angelou? Well, did you know Maya Angelou? Well, I was, was going to say, horrible. she would terrify me. Yeah, she was terrifying. And Jackie was really, really nervous. But then again, you know, people who had a deal with Jackie were nervous as well. So the, actually, it, it, the interview, nothing ever came of it, but it was a perfectly good interview. But Jackie was surprised, could be surprising, absolutely. Good editor? She was very modest. She was very modest. Good editor? Oh my God! Yeah, you should. His, her, the writers adored her. I, I want to ask. One thing where yeah, what? What one thing where 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 she said to one of her writers, "Don't tell anyone. I'm gonna get you money." <laughs> <laughs> and it was so <laughs> from her. That's so funny. Well. I, I, I just adored her. You finished the book, literally your last line, basically saying optimism was your lodestar. And of course, it's the, you know, the, the subtitle uh, throughout your career. You say, as I look back, it amazes me how many extraordinary opportunities seem to have fallen into my lap. I know I was pushy, cheeky, even audacious at times, but there was never a master plan, a stratagem, just optimism. Unpack that. True. <laughs> It's true. And, and you know what else? I, 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 people have pointed out to me, they're absolutely right. I could have said confessions of an enthusiast also, because I am both an optimist and an enthusiast. And I know that people think I'm silly sometimes. I don't give a damn because that's who I am and that's who I feel. They feel I'm naive. Trust me, I'm not naive. But I, 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 I'll go the positive route anytime. What an incredible career. What an incredible man. Well, that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thank you so much for watching, and goodbye from Washington, D.C. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 